Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Pelvic floor disorders are brought on when the muscles or tissues of the pelvic area become weak. It's an issue that affects women and men and causes lots of problems like incontinence and pain. Coming up, a pelvic health therapist will join us. It's understandable that people experiencing pelvic floor disorders may be uncomfortable talking about it. Does this cause some to delay getting help? We'll find out later in the show. But first, we're focusing in on maternal health. How well do you think expectant and new mothers are doing in the U.S.? According to a joint investigation from NPR and ProPublica, not well at all. In fact, they found the U.S. has the highest rate of women dying from pregnancy-related complications in the developed world. Did you have complications before or after the birth of your child? Did your spouse, your sister? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Now joining us now is a reporter for the joint NPR ProPublica investigation. Nina Martin covers gender and sexuality for ProPublica. Her latest collaboration with NPR, Lost Mothers, investigates why the U.S. has the worst rate of maternal deaths in the developed world. Nina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. How did your pro- project start? Our project started um, actually a couple of years ago uh, with a couple of uh, different things that happened more or less simultaneously. One is that um, uh, I was uh, editors at ProPublica were noticing that um, there was a report that actually came out a few years ago um, from Amnesty International talking about the um, the rate, the high rate of uh, maternal deaths in the U.S. and and it was um, sort of really singled out the U.S. as being um, an international embarrassment. And um, there had been a lot of you know stories about the report itself, but not a lot of deep dive uh, reporting into what was going on exactly. And so that was always a challenge for us, an interesting challenge for us. And as we were doing the reporting, we were um, came across a really interesting and important statistic that um, really doesn't get enough attention, which is that for every woman in the U.S. who dies, um, a multiple of 50 to up to 100 nearly die. And so the rate of women or the number of women who nearly die from pregnancy complications every year in the U.S. is um, estimated to be about 65,000 by the CDC. And so that really resonated with me because uh, about 17 years ago, almost exactly, I had a sister who gave birth and who nearly died in the postpartum period. And I remember the trauma of that. I remember how um, painful that was for everybody. She luckily did survive. She's fine. But I was, you know, but but at the time, it it was one of the things that made it so hard, um, especially for her, was the sense that, a, nobody at the hospital, and you know, anybody really seemed to know what was happening, and B, um, when it was over, it was kind of treated as if it was an incredibly rare thing. She was a unicorn, and in fact, you know, it's not um, nearly as rare as people think, and so that's kind of was the genesis of, of the big project, and then we, we started looking at maternal deaths and trying to find out, you know, who was dying in the U.S. and, and telling their stories. Now, Nina, how difficult was this to get a deep dive in this information? I understand reading through your reports how states and the government track maternal deaths is is uh, in question as well. Right. So the um, there's the, the U.S. has really um, bad tracking of maternal deaths. 
um, and near death for that matter. Um, the big problem is with the states. <clears throat> it's really up to the states to collect this data and to analyze it, to try to understand um, what, why maternal deaths happen um, and then what can be done about them. And the, the CDC basically uh, we sort of relies on, there's like the statistical modeling, and then, but the, for the real information about what's happening and why, um, you know, it's, they rely on the states, and many states don't have a process at all. Um, I think it's about, the last time I looked, I think it was at least 15 states don't have a process at all, or the process is so um, new that it barely um, counts to, to analyze maternal deaths. And then, um, and then after that, uh, uh, it, it's, you know, and, and then a lot of states that do have a process in place um, are, don't do a very good job of it. The, the data that they collect is really inconsistent, and then it's made more complicated and, um, because of the, um, there's a, something called a pregnancy checkbox on birth certificates that's supposed on death certificates. Sorry, um, that's supposed to help uh, the CDC keep track, but um, it's it's been that that has proven to be highly um, uh, pr- problematic and confusing. And there's a lot of both undercounting and overcounting. So um, so yeah, so there was that. And then the other thing is, of course, that even even for uh, researchers, they don't actually know who die. They don't know much about the people themselves who die unless they happen to come across them in their own lives or their own practices. Um, uh, you know, the, the, when they do these analyses, um, the information is pretty much stripped out. So they don't know a woman's name. They don't know where she w- went to the hospital. They don't know her family. They know a lot of things from her medical records. And, um, and so we felt that it was really important to try to find women who actually had died and to really try to understand their stories. And that has taken up, um, been an enormously difficult process, as we've discovered, because, um, again, because this data is not collected, because it's shrouded by hospitals and regulators, and because um, uh, even families themselves have sort of been conditioned to sort of think about maternal deaths and, and near deaths as being private tragedies and catastrophes. And, you know, they don't mention them. They haven't until very recently, until our reporting, in fact, they haven't really, um, you know, it's very rare to find even the, the mention of a death in, a, in, a, in an obituary. Now, Nina, so, an estimated 700 to 900 women in the U.S. died from pregnancy-related causes in 2016. Through your series, Lost Mothers, you identified over 100 of them. Um, what complications did these women have? Well, the women that we found had all the complications. I would say that we actually found closer to 150. Um, we identified about 120 in our in the story that you're referring to, and we've and we've since gotten more names. They die from you know from all the the well-known complications, so hemorrhage and preeclampsia, which is pregnancy-induced hypertension um, infection. Um, they die from things that would surprise a lot of people. In fact, um, at the moment, most of the deaths, uh, the majority of deaths, uh, maternal deaths in the U.S. Have, um, that researchers have found, are actually heart-related. So cardiac diseases of various kinds um, and uh, pregnancy-induced heart failure. That, those deaths account for like 25% of the, of the deaths right now, um, according to researchers in the CDC. Um, and then we found that people die of things that um, are, you know, even more surprising. So, for example, um, uh, there's been a big increase or, uh, in um, opioid-related deaths, obviously, during pregnancy. And researchers are realizing that some of those deaths, not all of them, but some of those deaths are might be directly linked to pregnancy because they're 
they are uh, basically uh, are pregnancy or childbirth. They're 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 you know women who <clears throat> who may have um, pre-existing uh, mental health issues or substance abuse issues that are not addressed um, adequately during pregnancy and especially in the postpartum period when they often lose. Um, medical coverage, and they don't have access to um, um, antidepressants and anxiety medications um, and other things, and and so that it could cause the so pregnancy and childbirth. Um, you know, it's really hard for 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 any woman, um, no matter how healthy she is, and um, it's really uh, it can cause a real spiral for women who um, have uh, mental health issues and substance abuse issues. This is where we live today. We're looking in on why the U.S. has the highest rate of maternal deaths uh, in the developed world. These are women uh, who died due to pregnancy-related complications. Uh, on the phone with us, Nina Martin. She covers gender and sexuality for, pub- pro- for ProPublica, her latest collaboration with NPR, Lost Mothers. And I wanted to bring into the conversation now Dr. Catherine Campbell, Assistant Professor of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, joining us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Dr. Campbell, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, This might be surprising to some of our listeners that the maternal deaths are are so high in this country. Why is that the case? So first of all, I'd really like to thank Nina Martin for bringing this to light in in the um, public realm, because this has been something that we have been talking about in my line of work for quite some time. And we are very concerned about the rise and lack of decline in maternal mortality in the United States. So I think there, as Nina really outlined, lots of reasons why this um, is happening. But the ones that are the most concerning to me um, have to do with um, the lack of access to reliable and effective um, care, reproductive health care, lack of universal health care to women across the United States, and Um, Those are two main issues that I think are really important and need to be addressed to um, start to help decrease maternal mortality across the U.S. Now, I mentioned that you're an assistant professor of maternal fetal medicine at Yale School of Medicine. How much of this is also an emphasis on when we're pregnant, uh, families, the focus is always on having a healthy pregnancy because you want your child to uh, be delivered and be healthy and that baby thrive. But how often are doctors um, looking at the welfare of the mother after that baby um, is born? Yeah, so I think that's a great point. Um, You know, as a maternal fetal medicine doctor, I do spend a lot of time talking to moms about being healthy throughout the pregnancy, throughout the delivery, and um, in the postpartum period. Um, But I do think that um, physicians and hospital systems and and medical organizations are partly at fault for um, spending a lot of time talking about fetal health and the health and well-being of the baby after delivery. And a tremendous amount of research dollars has been um, has been um, placed in the area of fetal and neonatal well-being. And we've seen dramatic improvements in decreasing the perinatal mortality rates, um, decreasing infant mortality rates, while um, maternal mortality did decrease significantly over the turn of the century and through the um, middle of the 1900s. And um, for the last 25 years has been stagnant and is 
probably even increasing. And so I think that um, this has been a call to action, um, that we are failing, and we're failing moms, and we're failing families, and we really need to put attention into this area. I want to go back to reporter Nina Martin again for ProPublica. Uh, your story, uh, you did research on how other countries are handling um, maternal deaths. And when you look at Great Britain, I mean, their rates are very low. What, are, how, what have they done that the U.S. should look into? Well, um, as Dr. Campbell says, the U.K., um, you know, uh, as she points out, um, access to health care is really important in this conversation. Um, and the U.K., of course, has a national health system. So they're really, um, you know, there are, uh, you really don't see the kinds of systemic sort of um, issues that, that in, in the UK, there, I'm sure there are plenty of problems in their medical system, but, um, you know, lack of access isn't one of them. And so what that means is that women have preventive care, they have good reproductive care, they have contraception, they have access to the right kind of clinician during pregnancy. For some women, it's, it's um, who have very um, relatively simple and, and, and normal pregnancies, uncomplicated pregnancies. It might be a midwife um, for women who have high-risk pregnancies. It's an OBGYN. Um, uh, and, uh, and then, or higher risk, I should say. And then once they give birth, there's a system in place to take care of that mom and baby. And, you know, postpartum care is not a problem in the UK the way that it is in much of the US, um, access to care. Um, and so, so that's where it begins. Um, another place that's really different, and we have a, actually have a story coming up. I'm not writing about it. I'm not writing it. It's being written by a, a journalist um, uh, who is working with ProPublica, and she's also a, a, a medical student um, in the UK. And so she's writing about what it's like like to practice there and you know when a woman has a complication and 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 the difference um, the, the typical the differences of, of, of care and so forth are quite typical but one of the, the big differences is that women um, is that doctors are, are sort of and clinicians are told from the very beginning um, that their first priority is the health of the mother and I think that um, I want to say that every of course I have never come across a doctor or a nurse or any kind of medical person or hospital, you know, that says, well, we don't care about mothers because, of course, everybody does. But but it's one thing to sort of care about mothers, and it's another thing to kind of put it at the, be- at the in the in the beginning at the forefront of the way that you care. And then when for the for them um, during pregnancy in this in this period, and then of course, and in the UK when something goes wrong, specifically a maternal death, then there's a whole very elaborate, very centralized, very thorough process in place to understand what went wrong for in, in each of those cases. Um, in the UK, maternal deaths are really seen as system failures, very much akin to an airplane crash, um, you know, because they understand that the, a death is not, you know, the death of a mother, a new mother is not, or a, a, a mother-to-be is not just about her. It's about, like, you know, ripples throughout a community for, you know, a very long time. And so, and, and then when they do this really thorough analysis, then they publish the results, not with identifying the woman, but the but the but the findings in a report that now comes out every year that contains really very important um, ideas about how to improve the system of healthcare for all women 
And so it's just a very different process. And that's how the UK has managed to bring down its maternal mortality rate um, over in recent years. We're going to take some listener calls in just a moment, uh, Nina. But I wanted to just ask you, uh, we were talking about the UK. I wanted to come back uh, home. And when we look at uh, the discussion and the debate over reproductive rights in this country, whether or not to repeal and replace Obamacare, uh, no other state uh, has the kind of... uh, attention on it um, than Texas when you see some of the laws that that state has uh, tried to have on its books and the courts have um, have ruled on some of them. But when we look at access to care and contraception in Texas, what what does it look like for women there in terms of, of maternal deaths? Well, you know, Texas had a spike in deaths, a really big spike in deaths, um, I think in about 2011, 2012, 2013. Um, that is, um, was just um, documented uh, by researchers last year, almost exactly a year ago. And there's a lot of questions about what is going on, why it's going on. I think um, there was an immediate sort of, you know, Texas is, is well known and in some places they would say notorious for the um, cuts to reproductive care that it's made um, consistently over the last few years. Every year, you think, okay, they can't get it, can't get, can't get any worse, and, and yet somehow it, you know, there's new ways to cut back on on care to women, and um, and so the initial um, and, and including abortion, obviously access to abortion, and but also family planning, um, money, family planning clinics, defunding Planned Parenthood, etc. And so. The immediate assumption was when this big spike happened that people looked and said, oh, that's exactly when Texas was starting to, you know, really cut back on the clinics and everything. But the deaths in Texas, the deaths, uh, the spike seems to have happened actually before. Um, the the a lot of the worst of the cutbacks, the most infamous of these cutbacks um, in, in abortion uh, access and family planning access were made. And so I think what's going on in Texas, and we are looking at this, is something that has been going on for a really long time. Texas is a state with the highest uninsurance rate. It is a state that did not take the Medicaid expansion. It is a state that has many rural hospitals, and there's been a lot of really good recent reporting, um, you know, underscoring the fact that uh, that the maternal deaths are significantly more likely to happen in rural areas. It's a state with, um, you know, in Texas, the big uh, disparity, as it is in most of the rest of the country, pretty much all of the rest of the country, is in deaths involving um, African, the black-white disparity. So black women are three to four times more likely in Texas and in most parts of the country to die than white women. In some parts of the country, it's actually worse. So, so, that's, so something bad was already happening in Texas. I think, and and then um, the uh, and then the the reproductive cuts came on top of it, and uh, we can um, assume that they have not made things better. But I don't know. I think in Texas it was already kind of bad. That's what my conclusion is. I wanted to take a call now. Uh, again, we're talking about maternal deaths in the U.S., the highest in the developed world. On the phone with us, Nina Martin, a reporter for ProPublica, worked on an investigative series with NPR looking at maternal deaths. And from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Dr. Catherine Campbell, assistant professor of maternal fetal medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, just want to take a quick call. Uh, Kristen from Windsor is on the line. Kristen, go ahead. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Um, hello, everybody. I'm calling mostly uh, based on my own experience, but I'm going to ask if there are any tracking mechanisms for what happens when uh, mothers with undiagnosed uh, uh, 
uh, oh my goodness, uh, preeclampsia, go into full eclampsia after birth and then die. Um, because I was, uh, I had a high risk pregnancy uh, eight years ago. I delivered twins. I developed all the symptoms of many of the symptoms of preeclampsia, and my OBGYN, who by the way is connected with Yale, uh, where I delivered my twins, told me, "Oh, I, I don't have it because I wasn't having headaches." I had a massive, massive seizure a few days after my twins were born and almost died. And the neurologist that sort of put me back together said, <clears throat> excuse me, said this should have been caught. And when I went back to my OBGYN, um, she was completely dismissive and said, well, it's, it's hard to it's hard to catch these things. You didn't have the headaches. You know, I had extreme swelling. I had visual field effects. I was 46, you know, 45 years old at the time. So um, she basically, I was told that, well, you know, it's a hard thing to to diagnose. So my question is, um, is there a way or a mechanism or uh, an institution of some sort that's keeping track of misdiagnoses um, earlier in pregnancies for women who um, are at risk or also feel that they, they have developed what they believe to be um, life-threatening uh, complications. I'll let uh, Dr. Campbell take your question, Kristen. Thank you. Dr. Sure. Campbell? Cri- sure. Kristen, thank you so much for calling in and sharing your story. Um, and I think you bring up a really important point in that um, you know, we talked about access to health care and disparities in that access, but also I think that education of both patients and providers regarding these um, common causes of pregnancy complications so that we can better recognize them, recognize them in a timely fashion, and and really minimize the um, significant morbidity that preeclampsia, for example, can have. And um, I think earlier today, this was highlighted in terms of um, education by nurses at the time of discharge. And I think that we need to strengthen and uh, our education system that happens for patients before they come into the hospital, for providers and for nurses when they are um, educating patients at the time of discharge, and also coming up with the best practices. How can we give the information that we know, how can we give that to patients so when they go home overwhelmed by a new baby, um, recovering from a delivery, but then also wanting to be aware of important things that might come up so that they can be an advocate for their own health care and when warning signs and symptoms come up. And I think that um, physicians, midwives, other providers also need to be uh, aware and recognize that um, these things happen. They happen probably more commonly than we um realize. And we want to be able to catch things before they happen um, to turn into something like eclampsia and a seizure. Uh, Nina Martin, again, a ProPublica reporter on the line with us. Uh, Dr. Campbell just referenced your latest story uh, with NPR. Uh, Tell us about what you found uh, when uh, postpartum nurses were surveyed. Well, what we found is um, something that um, is, I think, well, didn't necessarily surprise us. It confirmed, it confirmed basically what we've been hearing from many, many women um, who 
are have similar stories, unfortunately, to um, your caller just now, which um, and it is that nurses and do- we this is specifically about nurses. We've heard about doctors and other clinicians as well, but they're um, really particularly unaware about complications that arise in the postpartum period. Um, we this was a small survey of of, um, <clears throat> of nurses who belong to the leading. A professional organization, and a third of them actually had graduate degrees. So, although it's a small study, it was quite interesting, and a survey. And and only 12% of them um, uh, knew that um, postpartum uh, that maternal mortality uh, is most deaths occur in the postpartum period. That's pretty surprising for a postpartum nurse. Um, most of them um, uh, also, uh, almost a half of them didn't know that that maternal deaths have been rising. 20%, almost, I think it was 19% thought of maternal death, excuse me, um, have, have actually fallen in recent years. Um, only 25%, about a quarter of them, could reti- um, realize that uh, heart-related complications in, are the leading cause of death in the U.S. And a lot of them said things like they didn't um, feel that it was necessary to uh, tell healthy women that they thought were healthy about um, scary complications like the kinds of um, things that your uh, caller uh, uh, experienced in her after she gave birth, unless there was, you know, reason to do it, unless they thought there was um, a need to do it because maybe somebody had pre-existing conditions, and and it certainly sounds like she did. So I think that the study really um, underscores a problem. Um, It also shows, though, that, you know, education is really possible. A lot of it is is educating um, nurses and empowering nurses and women, um, you know, sometimes to deal with doctors and and so forth. And, you know, it's it's one big problem in this country isn't just access to care. It's that when you have care, um, whatever, is that you very often... um, can slip into the cracks because there's no continuum of care. You're not seeing the same people um, typically when you uh, when you go um, back to the hospital or you start to have complications. You're not seeing your postpartum caregivers. You're not often not seeing people who delivered your baby, and, and they may not have your records or whatever. So there's a lot of continu- continuum of care issues as well as um, complication uh, or as well access issues. Nina Martin covers gender and sexuality for ProPublica. Her latest collaboration with NPR, Lost Mothers, investigating why the U.S. has the worst rate of maternal deaths in the developed world. Nina, before we head to break, if our listeners want to get more information to you for this project, where do they go? They go to ProPublica.org. Um, that's P-R-O-P-U-B-L-I-C-A dot org. And um, you'll just come to our, our project page, which is um, called Lost Mothers. And there's a lot of materials there and also um, a form that you can fill out to tell us your story, um, which we really want to hear. Thank you. I want to thank you, Nina. And we'll also tweet out links on Twitter at Where We Live. Thanks, Nina, for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Coming up, Dr. Katherine Campbell, who specializes in maternal fetal medicine at Yale School of Medicine. She's going to stay with us. We're going to hear from a former Connecticut resident about her experience after having a baby. And we want to hear from you, too. Have you had pregnancy-related complications or someone in your family? Did you feel your OBGYN or hospital staff gave you the right information when you, when you were discharged? Join the conversation. 860-275-7266.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When you're pregnant, it's only natural you want to do everything right to have a healthy pregnancy and child. And when you go home, the focus is on doing everything right to help your new baby thrive. But does that lead mothers to avoid signs when they aren't feeling quite right? How do OBGYNs and hospitals counsel new mothers in those critical days and weeks after having a baby? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, we're considering these questions after a startling investigation by NPR and ProPublica, which found the U.S. has the worst rate of maternal deaths in the developed world due to pregnancy-related complications. We're going to learn more about these complications. Again, Dr. Catherine Campbell is with us. She's assistant professor of maternal fetal medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. She joins us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Uh, We wanted to hear another personal story, and on the phone with us is a Connecticut native, Emily McLaughlin, um, who is now a creative writing professor out of state. Uh, Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I understand that you had a baby at Greenwich Hospital in 2015. Uh, Tell us about how your pregnancy went, and was it a normal birth? Um, Yes, it was normal in the conventional, the pregnancy was normal in the conventional sense of the of the word, um, and that my routine checkups, everything was normal, blood pressure was low, um, ultrasound's normal. Um, my blood pressure was a little bit high during my labor. Um, in retrospect, I did have some, I guess, during the pregnancy, I did have some smaller symptoms that may have been a little bit abnormal, such as nosebleeds, a lot of breathlessness. Um, I was, indu- was induced labor, um, long labor, um, a lot of headaches during my pregnancy, um, and then postpartum, a lot of swelling in the couple of days postpartum. Now, when you were having these symptoms, I imagine you were telling your OBGYN that you were having them. And what were what were you being told during your pregnancy? Um, again, they're all fall under the category of kind of um, that they're not that uh, they can all fall under this kind of term of I think normal, and because the routine lab work and everything else and blood pressure, kind of the more major. Um, uh, tests that was all, all, I guess, normal or in range. Um, so I wasn't technically high risk. I was also 30, uh, 31, 32 at the time. Um, I don't fall into any high risk c- categories um, as well. So there was no other kind of, I think, warning signs that also um, kind of served as, as red flags when combined with other smaller symptoms. So you had your baby, everything went well. What happened the few days after you were discharged? Um, so I had a regular vaginal delivery and um, was discharged from the hospital two days later. And then so it was on the fifth day post-delivery, um, so five days postpartum. Um, that was actually the first day that I officially began breastfeeding. Um, I came down with about a uh, five o'clock that day, I came down with a um, a very severe headache, which they refer to, um, I guess, with the brain hemorrhage, they refer to that as a kind of thunderclap or a sledgehammer headache, which is actually how I would describe it. Um, at the time, and with nausea, um, the headache with nausea was my major symptom. I would, um, at the time, my husband and I believed that it was probably from dehydration. It was a hot day, and I had breastfed that entire day. Um, hadn't eaten much. Um, and so I think we waited a couple hours. We tried to eat, took a shower, tried to get some fresh air, 
called my OB. Um, his partner was on, on call for him. Um, and she, I think not intentionally didn't also, I had again had kind of nothing really major, no blood pressure problems during my pregnancy or, um, during my uh, labor. So she had told me to just try to get some sleep to kind of supplement my Motrin with some Tylenol. Um, and she, I think, was trying to not um, inconvenience me by having me rush, take the baby and rush to the ER because I had asked if I should go to the ER. Um, and so we waited a little bit longer and about two o'clock in the morning, um, I realized I was seeing spots and um, the headache was just becoming more severe. And um, I knew that at that point that I had never been, I assumed that it was a migraine. Um, and I thought I was Googling also during this time, I thought that I had assumed that it was, um, I didn't know anything that that could be, that anything that could happen postpartum. So I thought that maybe this has to do with dehydration and breastfeeding. So I was Googling for hormonal changes. Um, and so that's what I thought it was from. But on the way to the ER, I had a stroke in the car on the way to the emergency room. Um, and when I arrived at the emergency room, I had lost my speech and um, was having a brain hemorrhage. So the ER staff, when you arrived, they knew that you were having a postpartum stroke? Yes, they knew immediately. Um, and they got me care immediately. Mm. When you're going through your story, um, Emily, I'm just curious, when you were discharged, was any of this, did you get any information about things that you should be watching out for um, in those days after? No, unfortunately, no. Um, yeah, some information, I think, about um, how to monitor blood for hemorrhaging, I think, which was probably, I don't think was given to me um, written, but I think was the OB nurses were, I think, trying to instruct me on that, how to care for kind of um, my body, um, but nothing about, um, nothing about blood pressure, nothing about headaches, nothing about swelling, um, nothing about symptoms of heart failure, nothing. I, was compl- I didn't know anything about any of this, that anything at all could go wrong at the time. Otherwise, we would have gone to the emergency room immediately. Mm-hmm. I should mention, uh, because we uh, knew a little bit about your story through ProPublica, we did reach out to Greenwich Hospital, and um, they decided to not provide a statement. But I wanted to bring in uh, Dr. Catherine Campbell again from Yale School of Medicine uh, into this conversation. Uh, Dr. Campbell, as you listen to Emily's story, I mean, what is your reaction to, I guess, how it transpired? Um, So, Emily, thank you for sharing your story. Um, I mean, I I find the story very powerful, and um, I've these are the things that keep me up at night as a um, as an obstetrician. And I think it, again, highlights um, the need for research and funding um, at the federal and state level for how to best deliver the information to patients when they have gone through lots of times a long hospital stay for their delivery hospitalization so they can go home and they can have some real critical and key information available to them at their fingertips for what is normal and what really um, warrants, you know, finding a caregiver for the baby and heading into the emergency room. And, um, you know, a lot of symptoms that are normal with pregnancy, there's a lot of overlap with abnormal and OBs spend a lot of time trying to parse out the normal from the abnormal and just a routine headache from one that's related to hypertension and is putting the patient at risk for stroke. 
Um, so there's always going to be that overlap, and there's always going to be OBs calling a patient in, and it ends up being just a routine headache that's controlled with some Tylenol and some rest. Um, but you know, we don't want this happening. We don't want new moms having a stroke in a car on the way to the emergency room because they didn't get there in time. I was thinking back to my two pregnancies, Dr. Campbell, and I. during the pregnancy, you hear a lot about preeclampsia, um, and I didn't realize that women could suffer from that even after they've had their baby. Mm-hmm. So preeclampsia affects about 5%, 5 to 7% of all women. Hypertension in pregnancy in the postpartum period is extremely common. Um, when I cover our busy labor floor, we send patients home who have had a pregnancy affected by hypertension every day. And um, it's there, and that risk continues even after the baby's born and the placenta is out. And um, I think we need to, be, to do a better job educating patients about this. So if uh, for people that are listening, what should women be looking for or even people in their family be looking for in terms of warning signs um, after the delivery of a baby? Sure. So, you know, obviously you're going to have a lot of information from your prenatal care and from your delivery hospitalization. Um, so you're going to know if you already have some risk factors for preeclampsia, and that should be outlined for you by your care provider. Um, but going home, things like increasing swelling, um, vision changes, headache, abdominal pain. Um, and lots of times I tell patients, you know, listen to their bodies. Every day after you are, you know, ev from every day after you've had your baby, you should be feeling a little better. You're going to be tired and you're going to be worn out, but overall you should be feeling better and feel like you're moving forward. Anything that really sets you back and doesn't feel like it's right to you, I encourage my patients to call so we can have a conversation on the phone about what's happening, what they're experiencing. And in general, I have a low threshold to having patients come in for an evaluation because women know their bodies best. And if something feels off, it's probably because something's off. And sometimes it might just end up being, you know, reassurance and um, uh, recon recognizing a normal postpartum symptom that maybe the patient wasn't aware of before. But we want to catch these things before they become um, big problems that have life-impacting consequences for these moms. This is where we live. Today we're talking about pregnancy-related complications and how that's impacting the rate of maternal deaths in the U.S. Uh, with us is Dr. Katherine Campbell, Assistant Professor of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. And also on the phone with us, Emily McLaughlin, a Connecticut native who now lives in Michigan. Um, she survived a postpartum hemorrhagic stroke. Emily, how are you doing now? Um, I'm doing really well, thanks. It's about two years. Um, after this has happened, so then two years recovering, um, I went back to work teaching at the university, um, at the University of Michigan, and um, recovered probably within um, a couple months, regained all my functioning, and then unfortunately a year later um, did suffer another um, a grand mal seizure as an aftershock of the um, the brain bleed. So that was kind of another setback. So. Um, now I'm maintained on epilepsy medication for that. Um, but otherwise, kind of life is back. We're caring for a toddler, um, and life is pretty much back to normal. Um, this 
the research that Nina and ProPublica and NPR has done on this, I think, has been pretty healing and um, for my family, and that's uh, helped us really understand, I think, a lot of what kind of happened to me and hasn't made me feel like this, I'm such an anomaly that this happened. Um, has brought a lot of closure, I think, on the whole um, entire experience. And Emily, Emily, we just have a couple of minutes left, but uh, what advice do you have for expectant or new moms? Um, not to, to, I guess that it's okay to be terrified, I think, but also to, but it's also, um, but not to be uninformed. I think that, um, that they deserve information. So deserve, deserving the information that, like, um, about that these things can happen. They are, what happened to me is very, very rare and it is very low. So I don't think that it is, um, you know, it's not very likely that it's going to happen to um, to most expectant mothers, but that doesn't mean uh, that they should have the information of what to do if, if the signs and symptoms do come on. And also if, if a tragedy or crisis does strike a family that, you know, I think to be the woman or be the mom um, who kind of does break the silence on some of these maternal uh, morbidity issues, um, be the compassionate person who kind of speaks up or asks them how they're doing. Um, uh, well, we're glad to hear and that. Kind of destigmatizes the issue. We're glad to hear that you're doing well, Emily. Thank you so much for uh, sharing a little bit of your uh, story. I want to take a, a quick call before we head into break. Uh, Jason's calling from West Haven. Jason, we just have a minute. Go ahead. Hi. I just want to thank Dr. Campbell and the staff at Yale because uh, our second child was born there. And uh, it was after my wife had already had uh, an ectopic pregnancy, which is why I am on the phone right now. Uh, they were great. <laughs> Anyhow, um, my wife and I happened to um, already have a child, and um, we lived right across from the Yukon Medical Center in Farmington, and she was having, um, you know, some regular feelings like any other men's, you know, menstruation. Excuse me, it's tough for guys to say these things, but. Um, that being said, um, things all of a sudden, she, the uncomfortableness uh, it continues to exist more so than than regular. So that being said, um, brought her to the ER, and they said, well, Maggie, you're pregnant. And uh, that was great news. Okay, we were happy. But still, we, she's been pregnant once before. They said that every pregnancy is different, blah, 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 blah. And my the thing is, I, I want to make sure that any woman, any young lady that may be able to get pregnant or is thinking about being pregnant or at least knows what an ectopic pregnancy is or the symptoms because we had to go back to the hospital when... Uh, I happened to be home that day, thank God, but I heard a thump in the kitchen. My wife was laying on the floor, eyes wide open, lips blue. Threw her into the car, ran over to back to the Yukon Medical Center, and even getting into the emergency room to get anyone's attention in the staff to try to get them to take the situation seriously because we were there the week prior 
um, was very, very, very difficult. They, everyone was basically like, just wait, you know? So I ended up finding, running around, sort of finding an EMT in the hallway to take a look at my wife. Well, EMT Jason, we're we're hard. actually yeah. we're we're running low on time, but we thank you for letting us know about uh, the complication that your wife had, the ectopic pregnancy, but that she was able uh, to deliver uh, and to survive. We thank you for t- telling a little bit of your story with us. Uh, I just wanted to also thank Dr. Catherine Campbell. She's going to remain with us because we wanted to uh, lis- focus in on something that a lot of people don't know about in terms of postpartum care and even uh, care for men, and that's pelvic physical therapy. A physical therapist from Griffin Hospital in Derby, Connecticut, is going to join us. And we'll continue to take your questions, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been focusing on mothers this hour, and we've learned how vitally important postpartum care can be. But how are women counseled when it comes to their pelvic health? And this is not just a women's only issue. Men face pelvic health disorders, too. To tell us more, joining us from Griffin Hospital is Jennifer, Jennifer Passoni, a doctor of physical therapy specializing in pelvic floor therapy at Griffin Hospital's Center for Pelvic Health in Derby. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about pelvic floor therapy and how common are these are these disorders? Oh, unfortunately, very common. Millions of people suffer from disorders associated with the pelvic floor. Um, and you might be asking, what is the pelvic floor? So I want to start with that. Um, the pelvic floor is the bottom of the pelvis. It's made up of the muscles that help support our organs and help control our bowel and bladder function. And if these muscles become too weak, things can begin to leak or fall out. And if they become too tight, pain and dysfunction can occur. So as physical therapists, these are the types of things that we are helping our patients with. Um, some common diagnoses that we treat are stress and urge incontinence, both urinary and fecal, um, uh, pros- uh, prostate surgery complications, pain issues including constipation, post-surgical pain, scar tissue, and pre- and postpartum pain issues. When you talk about your patients, who, how often... Um do you see people in terms of after having a baby? Uh, very often. We actually treat pre and um, postpartum. Um, so we, we see lots of moms coming in. Their bodies are going through some significant changes during pregnancy, uh, making their muscles weak, tight, or painful, leading to any of the things that I've already mentioned, the incontinence, pain, painful intercourse, back pain. Um, so we're trying to get the word out uh, and, and get as many of these women in uh, to see us as possible while they're still pregnant so we can help them manage their symptoms and teach them how to uh, avoid or minimize any dysfunction that may occur after delivery. Uh, Dr. Catherine Campbell, again, with the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, do, do women and men know enough about pelvic floor health? So I think it's a common topic of conversation in OBGYN's office. Um, again, I think like maternal mortality and um, having certain taboos around conversations in the public arena about this, the same thing happens and has happened with pelvic floor health. But I think with changing demographics, um, more women are feeling comfortable bringing this up as an issue with their OBGYN. And it's something that we talk about you know, during prenatal care as well as in the postpartum period. 
I want to go back to Jennifer Possoni again from uh, Griffin Hospital Center for Pelvic Health in Derby. We just have a couple of minutes left, Jennifer. Uh, I understand that your health center um, also serves men, but that's not always the case. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the male patients that you're seeing. Well, men have a pelvic floor as well, so they can experience the same types of dysfunction. Um, many of them don't know where to go, who to talk to. We work very closely with our area, urologists, colorectal uh, physicians, and uh, primary care doctors to help educate them about some of the dysfunction that can occur um, so that they can uh, refer their patients to us as soon as possible so we can help get their life back on track. And any issues with um, coverage from insurance? This is something that people can, can get care for? Yes, absolutely. It's physical, you know, it's physical therapy. You know, we're, we're doing things with them like patient education about, you know, uh, lifestyle modifications, exercises to uh, strengthen and retrain the pelvic floor. We're doing bladder retraining. Uh, and these are all things that are covered under normal physical therapy services. So um, at Griffin Hospital, uh, we, we accept a wide range of, of insurances. So um, we're able to provide care to a great deal of the population. Well, I want to thank Jennifer Pasoni again, Doctor of Physical Therapy, specializing in pelvic floor therapy at Griffin Hospital Center for Pelvic Health in Derby. Thank you for telling us a little bit about your specialty and the importance of, of checking out people's pelvic floor health as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I hope more people speak up and, and look to take back control. Thank you, Jennifer. And Dr. Catherine Campbell, Assistant Professor of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Campbell, uh, you know, much of this show is focusing in on the fact that, again, in the U.S., we have more maternal deaths than any other uh, country in the developed world. Um, some, some parting thoughts on for our listeners, whether uh, they're pregnant now or uh, they hope to be pregnant soon, about some of the, the things that they should really know about. Yeah, so I think that uh, as a nation, we need to continue to talk about this important topic. I really think we need to create a centralized um, national database where we can review maternal deaths like they do in the UK so we can read through that information and whittle down the important points for providers and for patients to reduce maternal mortality. I don't think we're going to um, be successful without having that happen. Dr. Katherine Campbell, again, thank you for joining us from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to WMPR intern Tim Cohn. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. Tomorrow we're going to return to a topic that's uh, pretty important. We've done it before, but we need to do it again. And that is the topic of opioid overdoses in our country and also here in Connecticut. Join us tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>